Turn to Isaiah chapter 40. We're in Isaiah chapter 40 this morning. Um, so let me give you a couple dates that will frame everything with history. So in 722, uh, the Assyrians came and they took the northern tribes of Israel into exile. They actually took some of the Israelites and then they, they sprinkled back uh, the Assyrian people and the people that they had subjugated back into the region of Samaria. That's what we have, Samaritans, about 722. In 586 B.C., 586 B.C., that's when the Babylonians conquered the city of Jerusalem and the southern tribes of Judah and carried them into exile. We call that the Babylonian exile. Uh, we see books like Daniel, which are written in the Babylonian exile, the books like Ezekiel. Um, but then, uh, in the midst of Isaiah, we have a pivot point here in Isaiah chapter 39 to 40. Because everything that happened with regard to Isaiah, probably 1 through 38, was dealing with the Assyrians. The Assyrians. So the people of Judah are looking to their northern, uh, their northern brothers and seeing them deported uh, and transitioned into an Assyrian captivity. And then Isaiah has a vision. Now, in Isaiah chapter 39, we read this. Uh, and I'm, I'm, again, I'm framing context here. In Isaiah 39, verse 6, it says this, Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. So there's this, this idea that Isaiah was looking at the current events and he's prophesying to the people of Judah about what had happened in, in Isaiah chapters 1 through 38. In chapter 39, he predicts a Babylonian exile into the future. So when we get to chapter 40 of the book of Isaiah, Isaiah is giving us a revelation that the Lord has given him about what will happen to the people of Judah. And so what we find is there's this idea that there will be a Savior that will come that will lead them out of exile. One that who was promised to their father Abraham in Genesis 12, 15, and 17, who would come and bless the world and redeem his people. But that's where we find ourselves. So what we find is that in Isaiah chapter 40, there's a transition point, and Isaiah is talking about the days ahead when the people of God will be led into exile, but where they will seek comfort from the Lord, and the Lord will hear them, and He will comfort them, and His promises will be revealed to the people of God, and the salvation of God will be working itself out to the people of, 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 of Judah, and the people of Israel. So for us... We think about this, and we think ultimately that great Savior that is predicted in Isaiah chapter 40, that Savior is Jesus. So as you look at this, some of you will find that some of Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 through 11, is very familiar to you. And some of you will go, I've heard this before. Like, where have I heard these words before? And some of you may have heard it in a, um, in, in a pretty well-known group of songs, you know, called Handel's Messiah. So Handel is actually referencing this bit of, of Scripture when he, is, um, when he is doing, you know, every valley. That's when Cindy usually cuts me off. You know, she's like, cut it off, George. You know, cut it off. So right there is what we find, the, the idea that the Savior will come. So having said that, we're going to look at Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 through 11. This is speaking into the future for the, the first recipients. For us, it's speaking about the coming of Jesus. So would you please stand for the reading of God's word, Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 through 11. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare has ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double 
for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not, says, say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and His arm rules for Him. Behold, His reward is with Him, and His recompense before Him. He will tend His flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in His arms. He will carry them in His bosom, and gently lead those that are with young. May God add His blessing to the reading of His Word. You may be seated. So, this Isaiah chapter 40 is really the prologue for what we're going to be reading from Isaiah chapter 40 through chapter 66 of the book of Isaiah. And what we find is we find great comfort in the midst of this. But what we find is the idea of revelation, that God is revealing His glory to His people. And we see that in this. We see these key words that happen. Now, verses 1 and 2 are essentially the beginning. It's almost the prelude to the prologue. But we find in verse 3, verse 6, and verse 9, and this is how we can transition between those. And again, we're doing a little bit of Bible study here, so keep up. There's this idea of a voice cries in verse 3. In verse 6, another voice, a voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? And in verse 9, it's this idea of, you know, really the song, go tell it on a mountain, right? Go up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength. So that we can segment this particular section of Hebrew poetry and prophecy in the idea that the one who is getting it, meaning Isaiah, son of Amos, is now being told to cry these things, to say, to proclaim these things to those who are in captivity, to those who will be in a future captivity. And here's what he says as he begins. He says, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her. There's this idea that, that Isaiah is called to bring comfort to those who are struggling in this exile, into this slavery, this Babylonian captivity that will occur. Comfort, comfort them. Because what he's saying is, although your sins have led you to a place of captivity and exile from God, but the Lord hears your prayers. And He is not a God who is distant and removed from you, but rather He is a God who wants to help you. He is a a kind and a gentle, although He is also a God who is mighty in power, and His righteous right hand will not allow sin and iniquity to be pardoned um, without payment. So we see this this idea of comfort, comfort my people, says your God. And, And quite frankly, that is... One of the missions of, I think, the church and the gospel is to bring comfort to those who are enslaved to sin. Those who are struggling in the midst of their own lives is to bring the comfort and the peace of Christ, which can only be found in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're called to bring it to them. Comfort, comfort my people. You guys see this, right? I mean, you, you see this in the people that you're around. You see them 
uh, addicted to you know, drugs and alcohol or pornography or to their jobs or to money. We, we see people who are just undone and there is no peace in the midst of their lives. As a matter of fact, last night we were, we were talking about this, that when somebody says, how are you doing? What people say today is, I'm busy. I'm busy. And that busyness has actually become a virtue in the midst of our current society. So to say that, you know, if, if you were to say to somebody, how are you doing? You could just say, I'm peaceful, I'm content, things are great. How often do we hear that? But rather than feeling the peace of God, which comes through the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, we, we are almost conditioned now to be spinning our wheels and pursuing things. And you see people who are leading a self-destructive lifestyle. I mean, to the point where they're like wily Coyote running off the cliff. You know, or they're like Wiley Coyote putting an Acme rocket on their back and thinking that's going to go well. You're like, if I just, you know, I know that everything's going to go well and I can get a really stringy bird for dinner if I just strap a rocket to my back and light it on fire. And yet the lives of the people that we're around, they are doing that. And yet we are called to bring this good news in. in in a similar way that Isaiah is, to comfort, comfort my people. Those who are wandering aimlessly, those whose souls are restless, those who cannot sleep, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Now that, that, that idea double means this. It, the double there means to fold over or fold in half. Um, It's this idea where divine wisdom is two-sided in the sense that it always includes hidden realities beyond the reach of the human mind. So here, the thought is not of an excessive punishment, which is what we could get sometimes when we read that, that double for all her sins, that this is what we receive because that would be unrighteous. But rather, um, the thought is not of an excessive punishment running beyond what the case is required, but of a dealing with sin that includes realities beyond our comprehension. So when I look at that, there's this idea that double for all our sins, meaning that the payment that needs to be made is a great payment for all of our sins, in part because we are not even aware of the way that we sin in thought, word, and deed every day. That when we think about the magnitude of the infinite sacrifice of the Son of God on our behalf, we go, wow, that is amazing, but it needed to be the infinite Son of God sacrificed on the cross for our sins because our sins are are so great, and we're not even aware of the cost of the sinfulness that we have against God. We're not even aware of it. We, we, we almost think that our bill, you know, might be, you know, $20, 30 $40. You know, the, when, the, when, the, um, when the waiter brings you his bill, the bill, and you get it, and you're like, oh, wow. When, you, when really the bill is like, I don't know, a million dollars. And there's no way in the world that you could pay it. And so there's this idea that the iniquity of our sins is great. Now, what we find, and again, let me, let me break down the, the prologue here as we see this. We, we see this um, working itself out in this way. If you're taking notes, you can frame it this way. Verses 3 through 5, it's the revelation of God's glory to His people. In verses 6 through 8, it's the revelation of God through His Word. And then in verses 9 through 11, it's the revelation of God Himself in, in the person of Jesus. Now, what we find is that there's this revelation of God revealing His glory. And so the idea of revelation, and sometimes we hear the book, or we think of revelation as the book of revelation, but here's what it means. 
Revelation is the act of revealing or communicating divine truth. Something that is revealed by God to humans. So in the midst of verse 3, you know, the prophet is saying, I'm going to communicate divine truth to those of you who are struggling in exile in the midst of slavery. And he says this, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Now we think about that with regard to Matthew chapter 3, verse 8. Um, if you have your Bibles, you can turn over there. Matthew chapter 3, verse 8 um, speaks about this particular um, section at, at the very beginning of the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, Matthew chapter 3, verse 8, um, where John the Baptist is preparing the way of the Lord. Uh, we actually see this um, when, you, when you look at uh, verse 3 of chapter 3. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locust and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. This idea that it is a, a repentance that is what is called for. Where make straight the way of the Lord. And in verse 4 and 5, we, we, we hear the words of Handel's Messiah ringing in our ears. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. And the uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So we look at that and we go, okay, so what are we talking about there? Are we talking about a geographical, topographical um, event occurring in the life of, of, of the people of God? And I don't think that's what we're talking about here, but, but I think what, let me, let me quote from Ray Ortland, a commentator. He says this, he says, God will accomplish his purpose. Every valley shall be lifted up and so forth. Isaiah is not talking about literal topographical change. He is talking about the upheaval of true repentance. He is talking about a new moral topography, a new social landscape. He is talking about the disruptive advance of salvation. He is saying that lifting and lowering and leveling and smoothing are necessary to the kingdom of Christ. He is talking about depression being relieved, pride being flattened, troubled personalities becoming placid, and difficult people becoming easy to get along with. And he is also implying that if we cling to the status quo and refuse God's upsetting but constructive salvation, we risk having no part with Christ. So there's this idea, and we've we seen this in the midst of our lives, when, when Jesus enters into our life and he begins to rough out the smooth, the, or make smooth the rough places. You know, this, this mountain of sin, he takes it away, and these valleys of of, of depression and the sloth of despond, he makes level. And in the midst of his salvation, he says, I'm advancing my kingdom and, and I'm preparing the way of the Lord. And he does this through John the Baptist in Matthew chapter 3. And here's how he describes it. It is the idea of repentance. Repentance and faith in the midst of our lives. To understand our own sinfulness, to understand that we are wayward, to understand that, that we do not follow God naturally. And we need to respond to the gospel in faith and repentance, turning away from sin and self-trust and turning towards Christ. There's this revealing that happens, and, 
And, and really, when, when we think about this, it's progressive sanctification working itself out in your own life, whereby progressive sanctification is this idea where we become, because of faith and trust in Jesus, more like Him every day. I don't know um, about you, um, but I know that in the midst of my life and following and pursuing Jesus, that He continues to reveal to me the sins of my own heart, the struggles that I have, and He calls me to faith and repentance every day. You know, we, on Sunday morning, we do a prayer of confession, and yet we really need to be confessing our sins every day. You're thinking thoughtfully about, you know, how have I pursued Christ or how have I pursued the things of the world? What am I struggling with? What has dominion over my heart and mind? And what am I captivated by with regard to the world? Those are hard things. And, and yet in the midst of pursuing Jesus, what he's doing is he's, every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. That the uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. There's a, a sense in which that is talking about the rough places of our own hearts where we need to be refined with the refiner's fire. So it's the revelation of God's glory to His people in in verses 4 and 5 as He reveals Himself. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And then in verse 6, we see a little bit of a transition there because it says, a voice says, cry. And it's a revelation of God through His Word. And so Isaiah, he says, well, so you tell me to cry, right? And he goes, but I'm not sure what to cry. What shall I cry to these people? What shall I tell them? These people in exile, these people who are struggling, and he says, I want you to tell him this. You cry this out to the people. All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. So what, what Isaiah is, is prophesying, what he's revealing to the people of God is this. If you want to understand how you are, you are to walk, how you are to live your life in community and in faithfulness to God, then you need to re, you know, have your life revolve around the Word of God. It says, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the Word of our God will stand forever. John Frame, a professor I had at RTS, he, he says it like this in his book, In the Doctrine of the Word of God. He says this, God speaks, man responds. The course of subsequent history is the response to God's Word. He goes, all of Scripture, from Genesis all the way to Revelation, it is, you know, God, God speaks, man responds, and the course of subsequent history is the response to God's Word. You know, Brett McCracken talks about this in, in his book, um, The Wisdom Pyramid, when he says, if the Bible is anything less than God's personal words to us, then treating it as the foundation of wisdom makes little sense. It is... If it's just an ancient collection of sacred texts created by humans to propagate a particular religion, the Bible would be of little importance. But the Bible is not just a book. It is God's very words to us. When we read the Bible, we are encountering God Himself. You know, the the wisdom of man, the, the secular wisdom of this age, it is fleeting and it is like the grass that withers. Although, we've had a lot of rain and the grass keeps growing. I kind of wish it would slow down a little bit but it will will eventually fade. But what is eternal? What will stand the test of time? 
What, what wisdom has God revealed to us so that we might know how to live and love and parent and, and obey and to, and to steward over all that we have? It's found within the Word of God. You know, if we want to, we should base our life upon all of these things rather than upon um, our own wisdom. So, you know, 2 Corinthians 10, verse 5, I quote this from time to time, that we are called to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. That we are called to subject ourselves underneath the authority of God. But when somebody says to you, submit yourself to this, what is your initial response? When somebody says, I need you to submit yourself to these things, what is your initial? I don't know about you, but my initial response is to bristle. My initial response is to go, well, what kind of authority does it really have? Because typically, people struggle with authority. That's why boot camp is not 30 seconds. That's why boot camp lasts a little bit of time. Because when you get there, you need to learn a different type of authority. And with regard to the Word of God, every day we need to submit ourselves to the authority of God, even when we don't want to. What is the authority that you are submitting yourself to? The, um, again, the message um, is this, is that, that we as humans hate authority. We don't like subjecting ourselves to anyone other than ourselves. We like to think that we are all that we need to figure out how to flourish in this world. Um, Adam's original sin, this is a quote from J.I. Packer, Adam's original sin was a proud intellectual self-sufficiency. What J.I. Packer describes is the ability to solve all life's problems without reference to the Word of God. I mean, is that how we live? So when a problem arises, we, don't, uh, we, we try to figure it out rather than running to the Word of God in prayer to God and subjecting ourselves to the authority of God. That there is a, an ability to solve all life's problems without reference to the Word of God. True faith argues Packer this is what he says, means giving up the notion of intellectual autonomy and recognizing that true wisdom begins with a willingness to treat God's word as possessing final authority. That true wisdom begins with a willingness to treat God's word as possessing final authority. And so as you read the word of God, and as you have problems with the word of God, you have to ask yourself, is it me or is it God? And who am I going to submit myself to? Are you above God, or do you subject yourself and have authority underneath His sovereign will? And what the the voice of one crying in the wilderness, and and again in verse 6 it says, a voice says, cry, cry aloud, because I'm revealing myself within my word that the, the wisdom of man will fade like a flower and like the grass of the field, but the word of our God will stand forever. But it is amazing it is amazing that there are times when we have dusty Bibles. <laughs> how many of you have a dusty Bible at home? Yeah, how many of us um, have good intentions when we wake up in the morning thinking, I'm going to read the Word of God. I'm going to read it, maybe even maybe memorize it, maybe spend some time in it. And yet the cares of the world and the things that we have going on and the distractions of our day impede our ability to immerse ourselves within the Word of God. I mean, mean, God has given us 176 verses of Psalm 119 to describe how good it is to be in the Word of God. 
And yet, I would say the world, the flesh, and the devil conspire against us to keep us out of the Word of God. To the point, to the point this, if in your mind you say, I need to read the Word of God, it is better for you just to pick up your Bible and start reading it right then. But you know that the moment that you say, I need to read the Word of God, I should be reading the Word of God, there are competing interests with your time and with, with your interest level. I know that because the same thing happens to me. But in Isaiah chapter 40, let's go back to the text. In Isaiah chapter 40, verse 9, it says this, and this is God revealing himself, revealing Jesus to us. In verse 9, it says this, Go up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength. O Jerusalem, herald of good news, lift it up and fear not, says the cities of Judah. And this is what it is. I mean, this is essentially another repetitious way of saying a voice cries, cry out these things. And, and, and we sang it this morning in verses 10 and 11. Behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. There's this, this idea that, that God is coming and he's going to show up in a visible way so that you see him. Now, in Isaiah, he is prophesying to a people who are living in exile in Babylon, and he's saying one will show up, God will show up, and he will come with a mighty arm, and his arm is able to save you. Now, for those of us reading it today, we look backward to the incarnation of Jesus, to the life, death, burial, and resurrection, and then ascension of Jesus. And we look at Jesus being the one who shows up. Behold our God. And when we think about Jesus, there's two things that verses 10 and 11 reveal to us about Jesus. The first of which is this, is that He is a mighty God. That when Jesus shows up, He's able to renew, recreate, and redeem all those who believe and trust in Him. And we see the miracles of Jesus. And and again, one of the miracles of Jesus that I love is that when a leper comes to Jesus and touches Jesus, the leper is made clean. Old Testament law says when a leper touches you, you become unclean. But Jesus upends that and he says, no, I am here to recreate and renew these things. And so when Jesus performs miracles, it's showing that he is mighty to save. We might even sing a song about that occasionally. (laughs) That our good God and Savior is able to save us. Now, one of the doubts that we have as the people of God, when we begin to think about the sinfulness of our own hearts, the way that we speak and think and talk and act, is we go, is God able to save me, a sinner? And the answer, definitively, within the Word of God, is yes. There is no sin greater than the sacrifice that Jesus makes for us. And and yet... And yet, I will tell you that I have you know, heard and listened to, to people say, can God forgive me for what I have done? When we think about the Apostle Paul, who was Saul, who turned to Paul, he was a murderer and a persecutor of the church. And if God, in His mercy and grace, lavished upon Paul through the penal, sacrificial atonement of Jesus Christ on the cross for the Apostle Paul, can take a murderer and turn him into the great church planting, you know, the great Gentile church planter of the early church, then he can save you. And yet there's these whispers in our head, and whether it's Satan or whether it's the world or it's our own flesh, we go, yeah, but, but do you, 
Can God really save you because you're just not a good guy or gal? You're not good enough. And when you hear that whisper, you need to affirm it and say, yep, I'm not good enough. But I trust in one who is. I trust in a Savior who never discards, who holds me close, who holds me fast and loves me. And He will never discard or turn me away. Are you able to save yourself? Nope. Can't do it. But Jesus is able. He is mighty to save. And that's what verse 10 speaks about, is that He comes with might and His arm rules for Him. Behold, His reward is with Him and His recompense before Him. Now that word um, reward and recompense, it is really the idea of wage. So behold, the, his wages is, is, are with him and his wages are before him. And essentially what he's saying there is, is that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's almost a reference to Romans chapter 6, verse 23. Or it's you know, Proverbs 10, verse 16, which talk about the wage of the righteous leads to life. This idea that the wages of sin is death. So when Jesus comes, you will receive something from Jesus. If you are in faith, you will receive eternal life. If you are outside of faith, if you do not believe and trust in Jesus, then you will receive the just reward for your sin. Because God is always righteous and equitable. But He's mighty to save. And so there's, there's this twofold picture of the one who is going to come. In one sense, in verse 10, we're basically talking about Braveheart there, right? Mel Gibson and Braveheart, that's who he is. He's mighty to save. He can do it all. But in verse 11, there's a transition there that occurs because as strong and as, and as big and as powerful as, as he is, in verse 11, this is sweet to our souls where he says, He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. I mean, that's a a beautiful picture of who Jesus is. Because in one sense, in verse 10, it says he is mighty to save. And in verse 11, it says he is gentle. And he will will care for the flock. And in John chapter 10, what Blake read in the New Testament reading, he says in verse 11, he says, of John chapter 10, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He is referencing to verse 11 of Isaiah chapter 40 when he says that. And, and, and essentially what he's saying is the bad shepherds want to consume the sheep, but rather the good shepherd lays his life down for the sheep. In verse 12 of John 10, he says, He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, although the hired hand looks like a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. The idea of the sacrifice of Jesus on our behalf as the Good Shepherd should comfort our souls. But even more so, um, I want you to think about the struggles that you've had this week. And that we are called to run to the cross and we are called to run to Jesus because He is tender towards His sheep. He is gentle. 
He will carry the lambs in his arms. And oftentimes those are lambs, those are broken lambs, broken legs. Um, there's a, um, I saw this, some of you have seen this. Um, uh, it's a little video clip. And, and I think I saw it on Facebook or if somebody sent it to me. And it's this um, shepherd who's reaching down to this, and this is a modern day, it's a video. And it's this shepherd who's reaching down into this crevice looking for this sheep. And this sheep is lodged into this crevice. And this shepherd is doing everything he can to, to you know, extricate this sheep. And I mean, you don't see the sheep at all, at all. You know, but all of a sudden you see two feet and you see the sheep brought out of this deep crevice. And you're like, I can't believe he just saved this. And so he, he, he pats the sheep and then he lets the sheep go. And the sheep bounds two or three feet right back into the crevice. And you can see the shepherd like, oh man. You know, Jesus doesn't get tired of removing us from the crevice of our own sin. You know, just cry out. And our, our shepherd is gentle and lowly, but powerful enough to come and to rescue us and to redeem us. And he doesn't hate us every time we fall into the crevice, but rather he saves us over and over again. Some of you feel like that type of sheep. <laughs> That the moment that you, you come to worship and you begin to walk with Jesus, you, be, you bound into the next deep crevice. And Jesus doesn't tire of saving us. Again, as we see God revealing himself in his word, we see him revealing himself in the person of Jesus, we are called to bring that comfort and that mercy to the world around us. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, as we think about the way that you love us and care for us, I pray, Lord, that we would love you more. That we would know that we can run to you. and That you never reject us. But that Jesus is mighty to save and that he holds us fast and that he loves us. Father, as, as your word is eternal and infinite, Father, I pray, Lord, that we would subject ourselves to the truth found within your word. And that we would be a people who is known as the people of the book. People of the word of God. Brothers, little children cry out the song, the B-I-B-L-E. Yes, that's the book for me. I pray that that would be our heart's cry as well. So, Father, work in us so that we study your word and read your word and find wisdom. And, Father, I pray, Lord, that through the reading of your word and the study of your word, that we would be more in love with Jesus. We would understand our own sinfulness and we would understand our own redemption found in Christ. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.